So Lacey and I were married on December 31st, 2011. So yeah, New Year's Eve, it was, it was a good time. And so like any wedding ceremony that you have ever been to, on that day, we made promises to one another. We promised to never leave or forsake the other, whether in sickness or in health. Before God and before what felt like half of Hartzell, Alabama, and in reality it probably was half of Hartzell, Alabama, because it's a small town, uh, we made these promises. Now, I want you to fast forward to December 31st. I guess we'd actually have to rewind, but you understand what I'm saying. To December 31st, 2020, our ninth anniversary. And my anniversary gift was COVID. And my lovely bride, she followed suit just a couple of days later. Now, if you were one of those who had been in attendance at our wedding, who watched us make promises to one another, what would you say if, while my wife was sick, once I was feeling better, if I had just looked at her and said, suck it up, buttercup? What if while she was you know, laid up on the couch, not feeling up to anything, having zero energy, what if I was laying there with energy and the ability to do really whatever I wanted and asking her, hey, go cook dinner for me and the boys? Or what if I just went on about my day without any concern for, for her needs at all? Now, among other things, I think that you would point to the fact that the promises that I had made were one thing, but my actions weren't actually living up to those promises. It really didn't matter that I had said that I would care for her, for her no matter what. Acting the way that I was would cast some serious doubt on the sincerity of my vows. Now, we left off last week with Jesus in a confrontation with the chief priests and the elders of the people. You know, these Jewish religious leaders, they had approached Jesus and they were questioning him about his authority. And so he responded by asking them where John's baptism came from. Was it from heaven or was it from man? And what we saw is that if they had believed John, then they would have believed John's testimony about Jesus. And they would have turned and they would have followed Christ, they would have become his disciples. But in their unbelief, they rejected all of this. They refused it. And so they punted. They would not answer Jesus' question. And in response, Jesus passed on answering their question. But the reason for that, as we saw, was that rejection of the revelation, of revelation that had already been given, was poor grounds to demand more. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus continues to address these leaders and begins unpacking the consequences of their unbelief. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Matthew 21. We're in verses 28 through 32. So Matthew 20, 21 verses 28 through 32. It says this, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. 
which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Let's pray. Father, be gracious to us this morning. Open our eyes to what your word says, what it means, and how that should inform our lives. Grow in us greater love for you, for your word, all by your word. Fill us with desires to worship you and see worship of you spread. And I pray, Lord, help me to be faithful to this text. It is your word, and we trust that it alone is sufficient to establishing us in right doctrine and practice. So have your way among us this morning. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So like last week, I think there is really one main point that we want to see in the passage, and then we'll change it up a little bit, and we'll have two application points on the back end. So that one main point that, that I think we need to see is that only the repentant enter the kingdom of God. So this is the first of three parables that Jesus is going to use to describe who will and who won't enter into the kingdom. The first two are here in Matthew 21, and both of these are going to make reference to a vineyard. And I think it's important for us to remember that this comes on the heels of Jesus cursing the fig tree. And if you remember, you know, Michael has already pointed out that that passage, if we just look at it, just a quick glance, it might seem out of place in this chapter. But with these parables coupled with what we've already seen Jesus doing at the temple, uh, it shows us just how important this event was and just how uh, deep the symbolism of that event was. Remember, Jesus cursed the fig tree because it gave the appearance of fruit but was fruitless. And this was symbolic for Israel, who likewise appeared fruitful, but was not. Remember, there's a whole bunch of activity taking place at the temple, but not prayer. Sincere worship of God was absent from the place that was to be the very center of Jewish worship. And so, Here, Jesus uses a parable of two sons sent by their father into a vineyard to condemn the religious leaders. They had made promises to care for the people of God, to lead the people in worship of Him. And they gave the appearance of being fruitful, but their performance didn't live up to their promises. And so in the parable, we see a father comes to one of his two sons, and he gives him a job. Go work in the vineyard. And now clearly this child was a teenager because his response is, Oh, Dad, I'm busy! And he storms off. Now culturally, it would have been a big deal for a son uh, of any age to treat his his father like this. His actions and his attitude, they were, it was all shameful. But the son eventually realizes this. And he repents. He changes his mind and he goes into the vineyard. Meanwhile, the father goes to his other son, and he instructs him to do the same thing. Go work in the vineyard. Now, this son responds completely different. He respectfully agrees to do as he has been told, and then never goes and does it. 
It's like the kid who, or the dad who asks his kid to go cut the grass. And he sees his son, his son goes and is putting on his tennis shoes, and the dad's like, all right, you know, grass is getting cut today. And then 20 minutes later, the dad comes across his son, and his dad is sitting in his room playing video games, and not one blade of grass is shorter than it was 20 minutes ago. You know, he might have said that he would be obedient, but when push came to shove, he refuses. And so laying all of this out, Jesus asked the chief priest and the elders, who did what the father wanted? Who did the will of their father? And the answer is obvious. It's the first child who has done the will of the father. Was the route getting there the most ideal? No. But by turning away from his disobedience, he ends up as the truly faithful son. And so this gets Jesus to his point, comparing the response of the tax collectors and prostitutes to the Jewish religious authorities in their response to John the Baptist. Now, which is a refresher, John was out in the Judean wilderness proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We read in Matthew 3 that Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan were coming out to him, and those who believed him were repenting of sin and openly declaring this in baptism. They were turning from living like Gentiles and committing to the worship of the Lord. And so what he was doing was so well known that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to see what was going on. And we read in, in John 1 that this group who comes out to him, they were actually sent from Jerusalem to check things out. And so that's to say that the religious authority at the temple who are now confronting Jesus knew the sum and the substance of John's ministry. And like we saw last week, they flat rejected it. But this wasn't true of those that were seen as undesirable to Jewish society, and in particular in the eyes of the religious authority. And so for this reason, Jesus tells his opponents that the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. But now it's important when we look at that, when he says before you, that we recognize that Jesus is not saying that the religious authority were going to enter the kingdom, but only as humiliated second-class citizens behind and coming after the riffraff. No, what Jesus is telling them is that the tax collectors and the prostitutes had gained entrance into the kingdom. They were going into the kingdom. They belonged as its citizens, but the religious elite were not. Those who had the outward appearance of righteousness were shut out. And now remember, when we talk about the kingdom of, of God or the kingdom of heaven, they're used interchangeably, we are talking about God's people living under God's rule in God's place. The Jewish people were anticipating the Messiah to bring them salvation, to bring them restoration of all the blessings and honor that they had known as God's covenant people and liberation from their enemies. But the reality of the kingdom was unlike anything that the Jews were expecting. The tax collectors and the prostitutes, they were cut from the same cloth in the sense that they knew what the law required, what righteousness required, and they rejected it in favor of wickedness. One in favor of sexual immorality and the other in favor of greed. Remember, the tax collectors were widely despised for both political and moral reasons. Politically, they had cozied up to the Romans to impose taxes on their own countrymen. Morally, they used their position to take extra taxes beyond what they were allowed 
to charge. These were greedy villains who took advantage of people to fill their own pockets. And so these two groups were in obvious need of repentance. Their sin was on open display for everyone to see. The religious elite were on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. They were known and admired for their strict moral code. They knew the law, they taught the law, and they gave every appearance of honoring the law. And so they were revered for their apparent faithfulness to God and for their supposed care of the people, allegedly teaching them how to worship God. And so then I I hope that we can see or feel or imagine just how jarring and how infuriating Jesus' words must have been to these men. I mean, you hear Jesus say this, and you can almost hear the crowd around them that are listening to this exchange gasp. Who did he say was getting in? These guys aren't. What? And then you can almost imagine like the chief priest and the elders, they're standing there, their eyes are getting big. Maybe a vein beginning to poke out of their head in anger. They're blushing, they're red, they're mad because Jesus points at the tax collectors and the prostitutes and says, they go into the kingdom of God. They're counted as righteous. You aren't. But we've seen throughout Matthew that those in Jewish society that appeared to be righteous and most deserving of entrance into the kingdom were actually not fit for it. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then again in Matthew 9.12 and 13, remember this is after Jesus has called Matthew to be his disciple, and Matthew has left his job as a tax collector to be a disciple of Christ. And they're at a mill where the tax collectors and the sinners are dining with Jesus. Pharisees come to Jesus and they are complaining to his disciples. Why does he eat with them? What is he doing? In Matthew 9, 12 and 13, it says, But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous but sinners. The religious authority considered themselves righteous on the basis of their own merits. They saw themselves as clean, unlike the wicked and immoral tax collectors and prostitutes. Therefore, they did not see any need for repentance. And this is where the point of Jesus' parable comes to bear on them. The tax collectors and prostitutes were sinners. Yes, that's undeniable. And apart from repentance and faith, they deserved judgment. But the religious elite deserved judgment as well. What set these two groups apart was the fact that the tax collectors and the prostitutes came to realize that they were sinners. They came to realize that they deserved judgment. So they responded to John's ministry by repenting of their sin. And so this clues us into what Jesus means when he says, John came to you in the way of righteousness. John came teaching what righteousness required. That is, repentance, turning away from sin. The tax collectors and the prostitutes heard this message, properly evaluated the state of their souls, and they repented. Their response was the right one in light of the coming of God's kingdom. But the religious elite just scoffed 
And even when they saw the right response modeled for them by the tax collectors and the prostitutes of what to do in light of the proclamation that the kingdom of God was at hand, they still refused to repent. And so in their case, the bad son or bad sons had proven to be good, and the good sons had proven to be bad. Of course, this wasn't just about their response to John, as important as that was. To reject John was to reject Jesus. John's proclamation that God's kingdom was at hand included his declaration that one was coming behind him who was greater than he, who would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. John declared that this was Jesus, the one who had come and would wash his people clean. John prepared them. Jesus brought them under the protection of his rule and reign. So in Christ, through repentance and faith, the blatantly ungodly found salvation. And outside of Christ, through failure to repent and believe, the seemingly righteous faced judgment. But here we also see the beauty of the gospel. Both the obviously sinful and the seemingly righteous have access to the mercy of God and citizenship in his kingdom through the same means. Repentance and faith in Christ. Both the ungodly tax collector and prostitute and the seemingly righteous but equally ungodly Pharisee both enter into the kingdom through repentance and trust in Christ. Through the cross of Christ, God has established the only means by which anyone can be declared righteous, by confessing and turning from sin to be clothed in in Jesus' righteousness. No one enters the kingdom on the basis of their own merits, but only those of Christ. Our sins were crucified and were buried with him. They were credited to him and dealt with in his death on the cross. And because of his death for sins and resurrection, all who turn from sin to him in faith receive new life. Through repentance and faith, his perfect righteousness is credited to us and covers us from the wrath of God that is coming against sin. He secures a place in the kingdom for all who come under the safety and security of his rule and reign through the repentance of sin and faith in him. This is good news for all of us this morning. You drowning in guilt because of your sin, there is mercy and grace for you in Christ. Repent of your sins and trust in the finished work of Christ Jesus, who settled the sin debt for all who turn to him for mercy and grace. Are you burdened by your efforts to make yourself pleasing to God? You're not able to do it. You don't have that in you. But God is pleased with all who are united to Christ through repentance and faith. All who come to him are covered in true righteousness and are made right with the Father. So repent of your sins and trust in the completeness of his redemptive work on the cross. But if you're not trusting in Christ... This passage also serves as a clear warning. You will not be found acceptable to God apart from the repentance of sin and trust in Christ. 
Not on the basis of your good deeds. Not on the basis of your ability to stay out of trouble. Only through turning to Christ and turning from sin. But what does this look like? As the other wonderful thing about this text is that it gives a beautifully simple explanation of what true repentance looks like. Repentance entails an actual turning from sin and a turning to God. This is highlighted in the first son. It would not have been enough for him to simply say, you know, I really shouldn't have talked to my dad like that, and then go on his merry way. It was also necessary that he turn back and do what honored his father to submit to his authority. We see this again in the tax collectors and prostitutes. They had rejected the will of the Father, but realizing that they were in sin and deserving of the judgment of God, they turned from their sinful ways and back to God. Leaving behind their rebellious lifestyles, they found shelter in the hope of the Messiah. They found true righteousness. Apart from Christ, we are bound to sin. We are enslaved by it. It corrupts our desires so that what we want and what we pursue is leading us to death. But Christ, who bore the judgment of God in the place of his people, sets free all who come to him through repentance and faith. Those who turn to him are now bound to him and his righteousness from him and through him, citizens in his kingdom receive new affections and desires. Christians are free, and it is now a delight to pursue righteousness because of the deep, soul-satisfying joy that we have found in Jesus. This points us back to the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus taught what kind of attitudes and desires would characterize citizens in his kingdom. Kingdom citizens mourn their sin. There is genuine sadness over sin because it no longer satisfies. They recognize their spiritual poverty, that outside of Christ they were morally bankrupt, and that in Him alone is salvation and the ability to turn and seek righteousness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. Their appetite, their desires, what they long for and what they seek in the power of Christ is now to live lives that worship God. But no one who fails to recognize their sin and turn from it enter into his kingdom. That's the point that Jesus is making to the religious elite in this parable. Their professions of obedience to the Father were nothing more than empty talk. And their unwillingness to repent was proof. And so the warning for us could not be more clear. Your promises don't get you into the kingdom. Our words have to be backed up with action, with repentance. But too often I'm afraid that we try to pass off ritual and emotionalism as genuine repentance. And so the first application point that that I want to make try to make is we mistake ritual for repentance. So growing up, I felt a ton of pressure to remember the day that I became a Christian. And maybe someone else will know what I'm talking about here. I remember hearing someone say that if you couldn't remember the date, then it raised the question of whether or not you were really saved. And I hope that you'll agree with me that that's foolish. 
It's just silly, and it's not at all biblical. But I'm afraid that practically, we can act in a way that isn't a far cry from this. If you are a professing Christian, ask yourself the question, what is your confidence that you belong to Christ based on? Like, what, what, what I'm asking you is, what gives you assurance that you have gained entrance into the kingdom of God? Is it because you remember a time where you walked down an aisle, you repeated a prayer after a pastor, and then you stood there while the whole church came by to shake your hand and hug your neck? Is it because you can remember the day that you climbed into the baptistry and had the pastor dip you under the water? Now, clearly, it, it's right to publicly declare your allegiance to Christ. That's what baptism is. Among other things, it is going public with our faith. It is a public declaration of our allegiance to Christ. It's also a church that is affirming your confession of faith, both the individual and both the individual being baptized and the church committing to one another, to be accountable to one another. But what if we make this declaration to a room full of witnesses and then fail to evaluate our lives for sin and turn from sin? It calls into question the sincerity of our vow that our allegiance is now to Christ. Christians live lives of repentance. We respond to the word of God by carefully examining our own thoughts, actions, and motivations for sin. The fruit of genuine conversion, of being born again, is turning away from sin when we become aware of its presence in our lives and turning to Christ. For example, if I come to realize that I frequently gossip and slander others, not only do I work to stop gossiping, to get that out of my life, but I'm also going to make it a point to pray for others, to encourage them, to build them up, to speak kindly about them to others. Right? Christians don't remain comfortable with sin. We may very well stumble and fumble our way through dealing with it at times. There is still the old nature that is fighting a losing battle against the new nature that is ours in Christ. And that means we will trip over our own two feet in the fight against sin. This is true. But the reality of the new nature is that the truth of our commitment to Christ will come through. And we will put in the hard work that killing our sin requires. We will fight for obedience and seek to have our lives conformed to the standards and the values of, the, of his kingdom. It's what love for God produces in his people. This is what God works in us because we have been united to Christ by faith. We love being under his authority because his yoke is easy, his burden is light. We seek to throw off anything that isn't consistent with the will of the Father. We come to his, uh, to his word to fill our minds with knowledge of what pleases God, and we pray and we ask that he conform us into the likeness of Christ to change our desires. Our hope and our joy in Christ drives us to this. Our confidence and assurance comes from the finished work of Christ. We come into his kingdom on the basis of his death for sins and resurrection from the dead. But our confidence in him and his work to atone for sins produces something in us. He produces something in those that he has set free from sin and death. And being set free from sin by grace through faith, Christians begin turning away from sin and living according to the righteousness of Christ with which we have been clothed. But there's the question, isn't it? Is this true for you and I? James 2.18 says, But someone will say, You have faith, 
than I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Are we able to say with James that our works, which in this case is the repentance of sin, is the basis for our confidence that we belong in the kingdom of God? Can you and I say that we find our sin to be unsatisfying? Can we say that we are striving against it day after day to rid ourselves of it? Are we willing to confess our sins to brothers and sisters in the faith, to ask them to help us, to come alongside us, to bear this burden with us and help us kill it? Are we praying to God, confessing them to Him and asking for help, trusting He can supply us with the grace that we need to put our sins to death In Christ, we are able to draw near to the throne of grace in our time of need on the basis of God's grace to us in Christ. Will we do it? Will we gather other believers around us to read the Bible together and to pray? Will we make changes to our lives, to our daily schedules, how we spend money, eliminate hobbies, if these things lead us to thoughts, behaviors, or motivations that do not honor the will of God? Are we willing to be inconvenienced in order to pursue righteousness? Christians, repent. Citizens in the kingdom do what it takes to cast off sin and turn back to righteousness. We strive to live in a way that is worship of God in every area of life. This means we turn back towards him in obedience when we come to see that we are in error. Is that true of you? It isn't enough to say, look, one time I did this. I made a decision. I prayed this prayer. The Christian life is repenting and trusting in Christ throughout our lives. It is a constant battle to turn from our sinful desires and to replace it with something better, obedience to Christ and the life he provides for all who come to him for salvation. But then I think we have to ask a follow-up question here. Do we apply this same standard to our children, whether they are younger or whether they are grown and moved up, moved out? And I get it. Every Christian parent wants so badly for our children to find joy in Christ. If you feel that pressure, I understand. I'm a parent. I feel it too. But this can lead us into error. There is the temptation with our kids to point to a prayer or a certificate of baptism as proof that they are Christians no matter what comes next. So when they have no interest in the Bible or in the church, or you catch them in rampant sin for which their only real sorrow is that they got caught, or they move off out of your house and they leave the church behind, we start pointing at the confession and the baptism as proof that they're Christians, but that they just need to find the right church. They need to find more godly friends to push them back into the church. Then they'll be fine. Then they'll start behaving like a Christian. But we have to be willing to ask tough questions. Are these the actions and and affections of a Christian? Surely we can agree that they're not. So in love, will we tell this to our kids? Will we share the gospel with them? Because that's what they need to And if they belong to Christ and his kingdom, they will repent. The second thing that I think we should think about in light of this passage is we mistake emotionalism for repentance. We have to guard ourselves and our kids against the temptation to place our confidence in empty emotions. And that's not me saying that that all emotions are bad. I mean, I've tried to make it clear that the fruit of conversion is love for God and soul-satisfying joy in Jesus' rule and reign, which produces hate for sin and enjoyment, genuine, true happiness in righteousness and of righteousness. 
And so what I mean when I say empty emotions or empty emotionalism are, are, are feelings of guilt and sadness about sin that don't ever lead to repentance. You know, maybe you've heard the phrase a mountaintop experience. You know, this is describing a situation where our emotions get all stirred up and we commit to putting away sin and to faithfully following Jesus. And this maybe produces a short burst of activity. You make promises to yourself and to God that that sin, it's never going to happen again. I will never do that again. You maybe go and you tell a friend about it. You ask them, hold me, hold me accountable. You might shed some tears over the sin. Maybe you download an accountability software or something like that. And, and don't misunderstand me. Those are all fine things to do when they are a product of a heart that loves God and desperately desires to put away sin. These are all things that can be helpful for us in turning away from sin. But they can also give the outward appearance of righteousness. Outwardly, it seems that we're really striving to put away sin. But if it's just the result of having our emotions whipped up into a frenzy, then in time it's going to fade. Though it will seem like the actions and attitudes of someone who belongs to the kingdom, the lack of repentance will prove us false. That's what empty emotionalism does. It presents as repentance through a big display of emotion on the front end before fading into excuses and rationalizing our actions and attitudes on the back end. So the cycle continues. You convince yourself that you do really love Jesus and believe in him and that you're concerned about your sin because when you think about it, it does make you feel bad. But you don't actually deal with it. And so you end up making peace with it. Maybe it's slowly, maybe it's quickly. It regains mastery over you. And without true repentance, you find yourself crushed under the weight of your sin all over again because you've never dealt with it. And all this is doing is hardening you until you become comfortable with your sin. The fruit of this kind of attitude is to eventually run from confrontation, to pull away from those friends who call you out on your sin, to stay away from the church and the teaching of the Bible because it makes you uncomfortable, or maybe worse, sitting in a pew convinced that you're faithfully following Jesus, all the while refusing to repent of the sin that you are enslaved to because you have convinced yourself that you're dealing with it because you feel bad about it when it's brought to your attention. Our sin should bother us, and it will if we are in Christ. But those who are in Christ are also turning from sin. And it may very well be slow going, but over time and by the grace of God who supplies the strength that we need to kill sin, followers of Jesus put it to death because we hate it. When we understand the wretched place that we were in when the Spirit of God gave us the new birth and made us alive by the mercy of God in Christ, it will produce desires to abandon anything that keeps us from experiencing satisfaction in Him. Grasping this produces joy in living in submission to the rule and reign of Christ. He is our hope. And he sets us free from the power of sin. This hope and freedom does a great work in us. It changes us. This is marked by a life of repentance and faith as citizens in the kingdom of God. And I plead to you, don't make peace with your sin. Kill it. Trust Christ, the grace and mercy, to help you kill it. He who paid 
the debt that you owed for that sin, live to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love to us in Christ. And we plead with you, God, for the help to kill sin. Oh God, make us uncomfortable where we have become comfortable with sin. Open our eyes and work in us that we would long to kill it. And God, strengthen us that we would. We pray this in the name of Jesus. We pray and ask these things that we would live lives that bring you glory.